Good morning, church. My name is Austin Lewandowski. Our family has called Crosspoint home since June of 2020, and it's been it's been good to be grafted into this vine. So we are we are grateful for that. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 4. If you want to turn there um, in your Bibles, I'll be reading from the CSB translation. We got Acts 4, 23 through 31. So, Acts 4. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who has made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the, mount, or by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For, in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Austin. Stay, keep your Bibles open to that passage as we'll be in that for this morning. I'm Pastor Dave, a.k.a. Big Dave, uh, one of the pastors here at Cross Point. It's good to be able to open up God's word to you. And <clears throat> let me pray just myself. Um, you know, anytime you prepare to preach God's word, it seems like the enemy attacks so much more <laughs> prior to the week before. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are the same God today as you were yesterday and that you will be forever, that you hear our prayer. That, Lord, everything this morning hinges on you. It doesn't hinge on us. It's not about ourselves. It's not about how great we communicate or how great we sing. It's what matters is that we have a heart that is set on you, a heart that recognizes you for who you are and what you've done for us and who we are as a result of that. And Lord, we can worship freely. We can exalt you because Lord, this morning is about you. It's not about us. So I pray that Lord, I would decrease and that you would increase, that your word would come forth, that your spirit Lord, would make things clear, even in the midst of human uh, communication, that your spirit would impress what we're going to read and hear, Lord, um, on our hearts and our minds this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. As Austin just read, a lot of this passage is about how do we deal with persecution, but not just that. Walter Hilton says this, when your enemies see that you are so determined 
that neither sickness, fancies, poverty, life, death, nor sins discourage you, but that you continue to seek the love of Jesus and nothing else by continuing your prayer and other spiritual works. They will grow enraged and will not spare you the most cruel abuse. Charles Spurgeon once famously said, the same sun which melts the wax also hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. And we're seeing that in this passage as Dave preached last week and Kent preached before just to give you a little bit of context is that Peter and John are facing persecution. They've gone through the temple. There's a lame beggar that we heard two weeks ago that's sitting at the gate and he's begging for alms and Peter looks at the man and he says, look at us. And he says, I cannot give you gold and silver, but what I have to give you is even greater and that's the message of Jesus Christ, the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and they heal the man. At 40 years of age, it says that the man is walking and leaping and praising God and the people are in amazement and wonder. And you would think that the leaders of the church family would share the same excitement and the same joy that here's this man that's been uh, unable to walk for 40 years of his life and through the message of Christ and the power of Christ and the demonstration of Christ, not Peter, not John, it's Christ who's demonstrating power through the Spirit, through the word of Peter and John. And you would think that these religious leaders would be like, praise the Lord, this is great. This is a good day. But instead, what do they do? They go on to say in verses 17, in order that it may spread no further among the people, which is the message of Christ, let us warn them not to speak no more to anyone in his name. That name is Jesus. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of that which we've seen and heard. I love that. How do we become a church and a people that, you know what, we're going to respect you because you're authority, but listen, our authority is greater. And it's the word of God, and it's the truth of God's word, and guess what? We're not going to listen to you because we come to bear witness of Christ Jesus and what he's done. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And so the leaders of the day ask Peter and John, do not dare speak in the name of Christ. And so this passage this morning that we're going to spend time in is that I want us to see that the leaders of the day ask who do Peter, uh, Peter and John, who do they think they are and where do they get the power to do what they're doing? And we're going to see that this morning in Acts chapter 4. It's through prayer. It's going to the one who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, the one who is life, the one who frees us from the power of sin and death. Because the reality this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. We have to always be reminded that we are in a wartime mentality. You have to be reminded that as Christians, we are always in a wartime mentality. There is no break in the Christian life. 
Ian Bounds says it this way, it cannot be stated too frequently that the life of a Christian is a warfare, an intense conflict, a lifelong contest. It is a battle, moreover, waged against invisible foes who are ever alert and ever seeking to entrap, to deceive, to ruin the souls of men. And the life to which the Holy Scripture calls men is no picnic or holiday, junketing. It is no pastime, no pleasure jaunt. It entails effort, wrestling, struggling. It demands the putting forth of the full energy of the Spirit in order to frustrate the foe and to come off at the last more than conqueror. It is no primrose path, no rose-scented dalliance. From start to finish, the Christian life is war. From the hour in which the first draws sword to that which he doffs his harness, the Christian warrior is compelled to endure hardness like a good soldier. Now, I don't know about you, and this isn't a, 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 an indictment on organizations, that, but, but, you know, we've... <coughs> We, 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 we sometimes go into sharing Christ with others and we're like, man, come to Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know what? In reality, he does. Eternal life with him. But what we also have to remember is that it is a hard life. It is a difficult life. It is a life that is full of absolute challenge because you have an enemy that roars around, like a, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy There's never an off-season for the Christian. But especially in this time when Peter and John have been threatened with their lives, the temptation would be to cave to the pressure, to give in, to tame it down. And in our humanity and flesh, the opportunity to give in, friends, is still there, isn't it? If someone was to walk into this church building this morning and, 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 and heaven forbid, point a weapon at me and say, you know what, you better not speak about Jesus anymore. I can pretty much guarantee you that in my fleshly side, there would be fear. There would be. It would be even worse if someone came up to me and said, you better stop talking about Jesus or we're going to take your family out. We're going to take this from you. You're going to lose this. But what we're going to see this morning is the prayer that gives us the reminder of who we trust who we run to, who we find our hope and our identity and when we find the power to overcome the threat of the enemy so that if someone comes to us and says, you better stop, that we can look them in the eye and say, you know what, whether you think it's right or wrong or whether you tell me to do that or not, I can't stop because this is who God is and this is what he's done and this is who I am as a result of that. And so this morning, four key points that I want us to look at is that I want us to see this morning the first one is the rootedness of their prayer. The second one is the request of their prayer. The third is the result of their prayer. And the fourth is the repercussions of their prayer. So the first one, and I'm going to change something real quick so I can see better. There we go. Okay. The root of their prayer, verses 23 through 28. Let's look at those again. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's stop there for a moment. It says that Peter and John returned to their friends. This is really important because here's the point. 
When they talk about returning to their friends, they're talking about returning to each other, the church. It's not just leaders. It's not just fellow pastors. It's not just other uh, well-known leadership. What he's talking about there is that they returned to their family, the church. Which means that you don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be in some big form of church leadership to make a difference for the kingdom of God. All you need to be is part of the family of God. It says that he lifted up their voices together to God, unanimously of one mind. What does that word mean, unanimously and of one mind? It means without dissent, single-mindedness to God, not to others. Notice that Peter and John didn't come walking in and they didn't start complaining about the leadership. They didn't start gossiping about those who are persecuting them. It says that they got together with the church and what did they do? They prayed. They lifted up their voices together, unanimously, of one mind, without dissent. There was unity within the body of Christ. Now, does that mean that we still don't have sinful actions and words and thoughts? But the reality is, is that when we are living in unity, church, here's the thing. We die to ourselves. And we live for the glory and the fame of Christ. And that's a daily thing. Unity is not something, and I think I've said this before, is not something that we manufacture as the body of Christ. I hear people that are like, hey, Lord, give us unity, give us unity, give us unity. No, we have unity because we're joined together because of what? Christ. What Paul tells us to do is to maintain the spirit of unity. Which means when someone says something that's offensive to me, I don't sit there and, and, and have aught with them. I don't get bitter with them. You know what? I go and I address it. If they don't deal with it, you know what? I entrust myself to the one who judges righteously. It means we live together seeking to, to, to live for the best, for God's glory and for the best of the other person. I die daily, Paul says. There's a, certainly a place for personal prayer. We see it in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by, other, by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We need to have a vibrant personal prayer life. We're commanded by that in Scripture. Go into your closet. Pray and pray and pray and pray. But what I want us to not miss in this passage, friends, is there is a definite place for the church to come together and pray. It's absolutely a must that the church comes together and prays. You know, one of the least attended things that we do in church families are what? Is what? Prayer. I've said this before. What I love about Crosspoint is, is we know how to eat. We do a really good job of eating at Crosspoint, don't we? I think we do a very good job of preaching the word of God and worshiping God in spirit and in truth and discipling people. What I want to see us grow in more and more in my own life and in our community groups and in our church family is that we corporately pray together. It's a necessity. And we see it in this passage. 
What is the root of their prayer? The reality of life this side of heaven, friends, is that our life is going to be marred by evil, by threats, by persecution, by suffering. And there is absolutely no foundation that is worthy to stand on except the foundation found in God through Christ. They knew the constant, consistent instability of this world that would require faith, daily dependence, and surrender to God who had defeated sin and death. And one of the methods and one of the opportunities that we have to do that is through the gift of prayer. Together. Friends, we live in a very unstable world. We see it last couple weeks. We can't just go through this life thinking that I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to take, I'm going to do this. No. How do we, how do we root ourselves in prayer? Two key parts that we find in this passage of scripture. What did they do? They prayed scripture. Look at verse 25, or actually through verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What was the first thing they prayed? They prayed God's rule and reign over all of creation. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? That's a very big deal. They're actually quoting Psalm 146.6, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Nehemiah 9.6, you are the Lord, you alone, you made the heavens, the heaven of the heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all them, and the host of heaven worships you. And so why is acknowledging God's reign and rule over creation so important? One commentator says it this way, while it might seem unusual to begin by appealing to God as the creator to open their prayer, it becomes clearer why the disciples did so when we recall that God's sovereignty over his creation is the basis for confidence in God's ability to help his people when they are oppressed. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we are quick to lose sight of God's absolute sovereign rule and reign over all of creation. Think about it. The sun. Who controls the orbit of the sun? So that if the sun lost track of its orbit a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit farther from the sun, we would either fry to death or we would freeze to death. Who holds the sun in its orbit? Our great God. You go out at night, and I love living in Eureka, and you go out at night, and you can see the stars everywhere. Remember the ad on TV a couple years ago for 1999? You could buy a star, and you could name it yourself. Too bad you just wasted your 1999 because they've already been named. Right? Amen. Amen. Who am I to think that somehow I can look at the sky and go, yeah, I'm going to call that one Cletus. <laughs> no. The Lord placed them there. He knows. Right? You hear the doomsday people where the asteroids come and the big asteroids come to, to hit the earth and it's going to smash the earth and we're all going to be blown to smithereens. Who controls the asteroids? I love harvest season because I drive through the, through the fields and I look at all the kernels of corn and I think, our God knows every single kernel of corn on every single stalk. 
and every single being and every single bug and every single blade of grass. I can't even remember what I ate for supper last night. <laughs> and our God knows that. And so they start off their prayer by saying, the God who rules over all of creation. You want to talk about a powerful God? The second thing is they acknowledge God's rule and reign over the affairs of sinful men. And they go and they quote Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You check out the news and it's all over the place, right? Rulers from nations all across the world, like, no, you're not going to talk about Jesus. You're not going to talk about God. You're not going to spread the truth about the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And I love this. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. You know, you put some personification on God, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but sometimes I think, like, you know, these people that think, like, uh, boy, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, stomp out Christianity, and God's up there going, ha, 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 Right? He laughs in derision at them, and he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. And the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I love this next line in Psalm 2. Kiss the son. Embrace the sun. Trust in the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And in Acts, Luke says, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers, together against the Lord and against his anointed in verse 26. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now, were those agents used by God to fulfill his purposes? Yes. But Herod, Pontius Pilate, and all these others, and the Romans and everybody, were all used by God in his reign and his rule to accomplish his purposes. Why? Because verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, there's nothing, brothers and sisters, that's going to happen in the world today that's a surprise to our God. Vladimir Putin, he's just a chess piece in the hands of God. Xi from China thinks he's, thinks he's ruler. Uh-uh. <laughs> he's not going to do anything today that God does not ordain him to do, to accomplish the purposes of God. Where else do we see that in Scripture? We see it in Daniel chapter 3, 
Nebuchadnezzar sets up the, the, the statue out in the plain, and he says at the sound of the instruments, you're going to bow down. And if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And he says this arrogant statement, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There are rulers all across the world that are saying, who's the God that's going to deliver you out of the hands? And here's what I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They answered the king and they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. We trust our God. He's going to deliver us. But you know what? Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Brothers and sisters, our God is sovereign over creation and he's sovereign over all the acts of men today. Number two, the request for their prayer. Verses 29 and 30. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The first request of their prayer is boldness, not God destroy our enemies, God, get us out of this situation. And I'm not saying it's wrong that we ask God to deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. But when do we ever ask God to develop us before we ask him to deliver us? God, develop me. Let me be bold. Let me stand firm in the midst of these trials. Let me stand up, Lord, to those who are against you with your truth and with, and with your power. They say... Lord, give us boldness to speak the word. The request is not for the destruction of their enemy, not deliverance from the circumstance, but continued boldness to speak the truth, holiness, mercy, and grace of Jesus to their enemy. What's that word boldness mean? It's, it's a trait that we are willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially that involve being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. Peter and John, you better stop talking about Jesus because you know what? We're going to kill you. And we know Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was exiled to Patmos. You see, in the grand story of God, God's redemption plan is to display his glory, friends. It's not just to constantly deliver us out of the difficulties of life that cause us to rely on ourselves. You see, Jesus came and defeated the power of sin and death so that you and I can live in that hope. The world rages against Jesus because it requires me to die and surrender my life to the salvation and lordship of Christ in my life. That's not what the world is teaching us. The world is saying, live for you. Me, 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 get what you can. Exalt yourself, worship yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, I died so that you can know me. You can live in me. You can worship me. You can walk with me. You can live with me for eternity. It causes me to deny all other means of salvation that I think are going to bring everlasting salvation and joy. 
It causes me to look at all the things in my life, friends, that are dulling my affections and absolute love and surrender to Christ. David Peterson says it this way, such boldness is a divine gift, not a moral virtue to be acquired by repeated exercise. It's not just something that I just will myself. I'm going to will myself. I'm going to will myself. I'm going to will myself. No, he's saying Christians who have been bold in one context can be easily intimidated in another unless they seek God's enabling. Lord, I need boldness in this moment. And I can only get that boldness from you. I can't repeat it myself. I can't will myself to it, Lord. I need you. I need reminding that you died and you rose again so that, Lord, I can talk to my wife in a way that is pleasing to you and not to myself. Lord, you died and you rose again so that I can interact with my kids, not with frustration and anger and bitterness and how you need to perform for me, but know how I can respond to them because that's how you respond to me. I need reminder of the boldness that Jesus has given me everything that I need for life and godliness so that I can go and I can spend appropriately and not get myself into major debt and just seek to please my affections. And the list goes on and on and on. Timothy Keller says it this way, do you know why they got bold? Very simple. They said, why am I afraid of losing my wealth? I'm going to lose my wealth anyway. <laughs> you guys know that, right? You never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, ever. <laughs> you know, when they went to King Tut's tomb, what did they find? All the gold and all the riches and everything that was buried with him at the, the, the very moment that he was buried. I'm going to lose my wealth anyway. But here I have a wealth in Christ Jesus that lasts, that no one can take from me. Why am I afraid of losing my life? Because, friends, my life is ebbing away anyway. I was helping a brother yesterday shingle a roof. Total contradiction. Right? Number one, I'm afraid of heights. And number two, I don't know anything about roofing. And I got up this morning, and I could hardly get out of bed. <laughs> My life is ebbing away. This body is breaking down. Keller goes on to say, why in the world am I afraid of losing my life? Because here I have a life in Christ Jesus that no one can take from me. Friends, we have everything that we need for life and godliness now. Everything. Their prayer does not focus on the deliverance from their circumstances. Their prayer is that they will exalt and stand firmly in the one who is unshakable. And we battle every day to live in this glorious truth. That we have eternal life in Christ and not in what the world has to offer. What are the daily things and everyday shaking and unsteadiness of the worlds that seek to draw our attention and affection and dependence away from God? Entertainment, possessions, health, medicine. I love doctors. But what is the first thing I often run to is I run to the pill 
I run to the doctor than running to the great physician. John Piper was saying it this week as I was listening through a message where he said, you know, you go to a third world country, the first thing that oftentimes Christians are running to is they're running to the Savior in prayer for their health. And again, I'm thankful for doctors, thankful for nurses, thankful for medicine. But I'm learning even in my own life, Lord, I want to run to you first. God, you're the great physician. You're the great physician. The third is the result of their prayer. Three things. It says the place was shaken. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love this. First of all, the place was shaken. There was a tangible, physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We already saw that earlier in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes and it says there was like a mighty rushing wind that came through. Psalm 104, verse 32, who looks on the earth and trembles and touches the mountains and they smoke. Exodus 19, you remember the Lord calls the Israelites out to the mountain and on top of the mountain is thunder and lightning and the mountain shaking and he tells the people of Israel, don't you dare touch this because you're going to what? You're going to die. And they're all looking at Moses and they're like, Moses, you speak to us because we don't want God to speak to us or we're going to die. And God's just going, <laughs> demonstrating his power and his majesty, his presence. And it says, secondly, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that word to be filled mean? It means to become generously supplied with. Now, I, I don't want us to lose this. It's not like Peter and John were in an absolute terrible state of weakness. They had just come off what? Healing a lame man. Right? We would look at that and we would go, man, that's a pretty good day. Right? It's not like they're at the, the foot of the guillotine and they're like, oh no, oh no, no, they're in a pretty good state. And look what they're saying. They're saying, no, Lord, we need daily dependence upon you. It's not just in the absolute times of weakness, even though that's important. It's in every single moment. The joys, the, 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 the mountaintop experiences. Lord, we need to be reminded that we need to walk with you. Be filled with you. Commentator says it this way. Believers already walking closely with the Lord, filled or controlled by his spirit, can be filled afresh as God takes them to whatever capacity they need to meet a new demand. Peter and John, you better stop talking about Jesus or we're going to hurt you. We just healed the lame guy through the power of Christ. Now we're being told, <laughs> don't talk anymore about Jesus. Lord, we need a filling of your spirit. A reminder of who you are and what you've done, what you have done and who we are as a result of that. The third is they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love that. That word, continue. John Piper says it this way, this outpouring of the Spirit is exactly what is desperately needed in the church in America because of the challenges that face us. This is true even in the best of churches. Notice that the people on whom this blessing came were not disobedient or faithless. Some of them, Peter and John, had just been spectacularly obedient in fact, verse 8 says that Peter had been filled with the Holy Spirit when he stood up to speak in the courtroom, and now he and the other praying saints are filled again in this extraordinary way. 
See, in order for you and I to live a constant, dependent, obedient, trust-filled, faith-filled life, it's a constant, constant dependence on the Lord through prayer by His Spirit. Lord, fill me. Fill me. Keep me abundant. Number four, the last was, what are the repercussions of their prayer? You see, their boldness just didn't impact their words. Their boldness impacted their way of life. It says in here that they were, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Four things about the repercussions of their prayer. They were united of heart and soul. We've already talked about that. We're not going to spend much time on that. What can I do to maintain the spirit of unity, church? What does Dave Wolf need to do to maintain the spirit of unity? Number two, they had all things in common. What does that mean? It means that they became radically generous. When the church grasps the enormity and the kindness of God and that he saves sinners like us and delivers us from his just wrath and condemnation through providing salvation through the precious blood of his son, and then he gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. As is mentioned in scripture, you remember the story of the prodigal son? He, he's given the robe of righteousness, the fatted calf, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, continual provision. I'm spitting all over the place, sorry. Jerry, you're going to have to clean this up. You're going to have to sanitize this when you're all done. I get fired up. Sorry. Right? We're given everything that we need for life and godliness. And what does that lead us to? It leads us to boldly be generous. Friends, a lot of us isn't, it's not because we don't give generously because we're greedy. I think a lot of us, including myself, we may not give because of fear. If I really get down to the root issue of why I don't like to be generous, sometimes it's because of fear. Lord, there's not going to be enough there. I got to make sure I have this. I got to do that. And I'm not talking about that we're not prudent and that we don't plan and, and that we don't. I'm not saying that. But if I realize what Jesus Christ has given to me and everything that I have in him, that he came from heaven, lived my life, died my death, was put in the grave, rose again in victory over sin and death, Folks, that is generosity. And I get to live generously with boldness. And it's, not, and it's done in love and it's not done in fear. And so how many of us hold on to our time, our talents, and our treasures because of fear? The third thing that they give is testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means that their story was impactful. means it was validated by how they lived. means to bear witness. It was firsthand authentication of the fact. 
resurrection of Christ, what that accomplished for us, brothers and sisters, was the absolute solid defeat of sin and death. Can't say it any other way. Fourth, they were full of grace. What's the word grace means? It means an activity that is a necessary consequence of genuine, beneficent goodwill, especially used of the outworking of God's goodwill. The grace that is mentioned here, one commentator says, is the divine favor and presence which rests upon the community and which is somehow tangibly manifest. The sharing described in verses 34 through 37 is a particular sign of this grace at work among them. But the remarkable point about this verse is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity. Don't miss that. What Christ has accomplished for me on the cross, resurrection from the grave, that is my motivation for generosity. This commentator goes on to say, not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions. The gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving love. And so they could take their possessions and they're like, you know what? Borrow it. Take it. You've offended me. I can give you grace. You know what? Because I've offended Christ myself. And look how God is with me. I think I've shared this with you before, you know, when we had our little spanking spoon with our kids, back when they were younger, Jess would write on there this phrase, how has God dealt with me? <laughs> right? Because your child's there and you're getting ready to like lower the boom. And it's like, how has God dealt with me? Ooh. Ouch. Grace. And grace manifests itself in so many different ways, both in the physical, tangible things of life, but also in those moments of, of quietness and, and, and tenseness and, and conflict where we say, you know what? Love covers a multitude of sin. John Stott says it this way, the cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. And you see the church here because of their boldness in prayer, not, not just for themselves, but Lord, how do we manifest this self? The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. Don't ever forget that. So what does that mean for us? You know, as a church, we live 3D. That's what our desire is. We want to be a church that's devoted to Jesus. So what does being devoted to Jesus in this passage look like? Number one, in order to be led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, you have to be born again of the Spirit. You have to be saved. You can't just be a religious person. You can't just be good on your own. You have to be a child of God by grace through faith. The recognition that I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And I can be made right with God. Number two in that part, devotion to God means that Jesus is Lord of my life and I want people to know God's story and to live that out. And how do I do that? Lord, need your boldness. Because the world is telling us a different story. 
The only way that we combat the wrong story is knowing the right story. Timothy Keller says it this way, first of all, you have to identify your real problem. We think that the world is going to stop shaking, and it won't. Then you have to remember Jesus Christ, how he was shaken, so that, he, that we would never be shaken again. Then you have to pray that in. Then you have to give and live as if this is all true, and it will come, and you will become unshakable people. So let's do that together. Devoted to Jesus. Devotion to God means that we want to be dependent on the Spirit through prayer individually and corporately. Friends through our community groups that pray together through corporate prayer gatherings. As leadership, we've, we've talked a little bit about having some corporate prayer gatherings in the upcoming year, and I hope that is something that you will mark on your calendar to say, we want to see the room shaken. We want to see the Spirit at work. We need to pray together as a body, as a family. Number two, we want to be people who are dedicated to one another by living as family and servants because of what Christ has given to us. So my question to you this morning, who is one person that the Spirit of God is impressing on your heart this morning to live with as family and to serve out of an abundance of grace in your own life? A bold, a bold generosity. Hopefully that's somebody within your community group. Maybe it's not. Thirdly, we want to be a people who are driven to reach others because of the boldness that we have through the Spirit, because we have an understanding of what we have completely in Christ Jesus. Dave alluded to this several weeks ago when he said, who is one person that the Lord has laid upon your heart that do, does not know the grace, saving grace of Jesus on their life that you want to live on mission to this upcoming year? I hope that you have taken that to heart. And I hope that you are prayerfully saying, Lord, Help me to be bold with this person. Help me to love them boldly. Help me to speak truth to them boldly. Help me to live boldly and to show boldly and to tell boldly. And if you haven't, my encouragement to you this morning as a point of application is that you would ask the Lord to impress upon your heart, Lord, who can I live on mission to? Now, hopefully it's more. But we're asking you to consider one. Now look at this room. There's probably 200 of us in here. If each one of us just says to the Lord for the next year, Lord, show me how I can live on mission. That's 200 people. That's a great start. So Lord, help us to be devoted to you. Help us, Lord, to be dedicated to one another boldly. Help us to be people of prayer that are dependent upon your spirit. Lord, help us to be people that want to see others hear that boldness and to come to a saving knowledge of you. So soften hearts. Lord, would you make us a praying people? Would you shake this place with your spirit? Lord, as we give to you and to your kingdom, may we be reminded that more of you and less of me, Lord, take everything Help us to be a generous people with our time, our talents, our giving, our love, our grace, mercy, our words, our sacrifice, our service. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in all of this. In Christ's name, amen.